You are going to get such great help today as we talk with Michelle Essery, a mental health counselor who's going to give us insight on why these kids do what they do and how to help them. Do you love a prodigal? Do you feel like you are lost in a scary and endless wilderness? Welcome to the When You Love a Prodigal podcast. I am Judy Douglas, and I spent more than 15 years in that wilderness. I believe together we will discover help and hope for your journey. Did you listen to my conversation with my daughter, Michelle, about uh, the family and being a sibling of a, of a prodigal? I hope it blessed you and helped you and just gave you some insights as well as uh, permission to, to not beat yourself up. Um, and I think you're going to enjoy today as Michelle and I continue to talk. We're going to be talking about uh, from her professional perspective, some things about why kids or people make some of the choices they do, about um, trauma in their life and various mental illness things, and some ways to be helpful um, for yourself and for your loved one. So, Michelle, Michelle Esserik, welcome back to When You Love a Prodigal. And I'm so glad that you're here. Michelle went to Denver Seminary to get her master's degree and then did her all of her earning her hours uh, in Denver as well to be a mental a licensed mental health counselor. We call um, it licensed professional counselor in Alabama and Colorado. <laughs> it, oh, okay. But it's the well, same thing. Same thing. All right. You know, that's not the area I run into much. No, that's okay. They just they <laughs> like us to be very exacting about that. Okay. Okay. So I let, let me start with this. I've told many, many people that you started your counseling ministry when you were 12. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that your friends were always coming to you when they were struggling. Some of them, one of them lived with us for a while, but um, that they would say, I can't tell you, even as, as life went on and you were in college and graduating, they'd say, Michelle has been such a blessing. She has helped me so much. And so when you decided it was time and you wanted to go to get your degree to go into counseling, it didn't surprise me at all. And when I um, was with you while you were about eight months into your your education there, and I said, well, how are you feeling about what you're doing and this for your future? And you're, you said, oh, this was such an, it's been such an affirmation that this is what God's made me for. And um, that you love the, the opportunity to be able to hear and understand and help people. So now that I've kind of told my side of your journey, I would love to hear, or the, my listeners, what's, what's your journey been to get you to where you are briefly? I mentioned, and we talked a little in the last interview we did, about, you know, there's this, and I think this is true for everyone, right? There's one part that's a little bit of personality and what God has given you, and then one part that is your environment that helps shape where you end up going. And 
Um, I'd say both of those together, including some of what we've experienced with our own, um, with a prodigal in, in the family, had an influence on my, and I said this last time, but my ability to see, to empathize, to really care about other people. And so as a result, over the years, I think that developed more as I became more stable in who I was and a little less self-focused all the time, um, <laughs> which is, you know, happens in teenagers or something like that. Um, yeah. As that began to happen, and I, you know, you know this, but your listeners may not. I worked in ministry myself for years before I moved into counseling. And what ended up happening is as I was progressing kind of in my ministry career, I would hit these places with with people that I was meeting with. And I would feel like I want to be able to go to this deeper place with them, but I do not have the training to do it responsibly, if that makes sense. I, I wanted to care more deeply for them. I wanted to hear about these significant traumatic events, but I didn't feel um, secure in doing that safely um, without further training. And so eventually I thought, why don't I go get training to do this if it's what I want to do? And so that that moved me from ministry into a counseling specific role um, and then ended up working working in counseling for years in Colorado. And then now I've, and, and we'll talk about this maybe at the end, but um, now I've added also neurofeedback, which is another tool and have, um, when we moved from Colorado to Alabama, um, have now been in my own practice and am able to, I guess, meet with people more. So um, more based kind of in this, combination of talking and using other modalities to really care for and help people. Um, but I have been, I guess, in counseling for, what, 10, 12 years now. Um, and so I've been doing it for a good chunk of my adult life. And um, I'm still very glad that I am doing it, though it has morphed and changed as things tend to over the years. So, so have you in your experience, I know your thing says you do families and teenagers and other things. So have you worked much, especially with adolescents and young adults um, who have been acting out or have addictions or have even gotten into criminal activity or any of those? I mean, have you done that kind of work before? I think adolescents and early adult. Um, population has, has been a large part of what I've worked with. I've worked also with couples and families, um, which includes, I think, children and adolescents. I, um, before doing neurofeedback, I didn't do a lot with young children because the style of therapy that I do is what we would call talk therapy, which is much more interactive. And so it requires that there be more capacity for that and not play therapy. Um, so you like 14 and up. And so you get a fair variety of issues related to 13, 14 and up would typically be my population that I've worked with over the years. Um, and I've seen a lot of addictions, a lot of acting out. I, I would say, interestingly, um, I mean, we call it acting out, but um, dealing with major issues and events maybe would be how I would say it more than even just acting out, like dealing with big things, dealing with um, perhaps major mental health issues, perhaps developmental issues, other things like that. I've seen quite a bit over the years. So going right where you were, how how do these things relate to each other? Because we can either think everything's separate or everything's all in one big ball, and, and how do you pull the parts out? But trauma, which is 
often a part place that impacts prodigals or people mm-hmm. who have made some not good choices. Their own development, personal development, mm-hmm. behavior tendencies or behavior and and mental health I know is a huge issue that often impacts people who are have gone in a not great direction. How does that relate? What do you do with all that? I mean, I feel like this is one of the critical questions to probably address when dealing with mental health and prodigals or or prodigals in general. It you it is very difficult to fully segregate the parts of a person, right? Like they're obviously all impacting each other. Um, We, as humans, we react very significantly when things are scary or difficult in our lives, which is what we would typically call traumatic experiences, right? Um, Things that make us feel unsafe. God's given us this brain to be able to kind of process and protect us in those circumstances. And sometimes to the extreme, right? Sometimes to the extreme that it walls off certain parts of us, it separates certain parts of us, you know, like there are some extreme responses to trauma, but basically when we feel unsafe, we have these amazing built-in coping mechanisms to help us to feel safe. The downside of that is that then we are not always able to kind of break down those coping mechanisms when we no longer need them for our safety and they begin to impact our behavior, um, and our patterning and our experience and even how our brain functions um, for a long time after that. So there's this, you have trauma as one piece, you have mental health, biological mental health. Some of that is encoded, right? Even down to our DNA, our biology is is there from the time that we are born. Um, and, you know, there are all the scientists in the world who argue nature versus nurture all day long. I'm not here to do that, but <laughs> but there is a biological component in our lives. And sometimes there's a biological component passed down generationally um, related to mental health. We might have tendencies, personality tendencies, biological tendencies towards anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder or things like that um, that are important to take into account. We also have this huge environmental piece. And what happens to us, and I know I said the bit about trauma, but what happens to us, you know, the more we learn, even all the way, and this is probably getting a little too brain geeky on you or science geeky, (laughs) which I do on occasion, even all the way down to our DNA, we, the more we learn, there's the field of epigenetics where the more we learn about genetics, the more we see that even um, down to a DNA level, things can be activated and deactivated by our environmental experiences. And so things even down to how we are as people, um, but certainly mirroring and how we are um, interpersonally, um, all of those things are impacted by what we experience. And so there's, there's this, it is impossible to fully segregate them out. I would throw in there also, and I think for your listeners, it's significant, the spiritual element. Um, you can't separate that out either, um, in my opinion. There's, there's a development there and a, and a view that is developed over time, patterning that develops over time um, related to that also. And so all of these things impact not only the biological makeup, how patterns emerge like in somebody's brain, in somebody's um, biology, body, hormonally, those things, they impact behavioral patterns. They also impact worldview, how they're coming to a view of the world. So they may have these... um, these very physical, behavioral, biological components, and then they have this cultural component also. Um, 
I have a friend who works with foster kids and he uses this, um, what is the, the personal biological component and then what is the cultural component of, um, of trauma. And when you see the world in a certain way, it is really difficult to get outside of that. And, and that worldview is formed at a relatively early age. Can you trust people? Can you not trust people? Am I okay? Am I not okay? Um, are, are people um, something that I can have? Like, can I have a, a deep interpersonal relationship? Can somebody ever love me? Am I, should I be ashamed of who I am? Or should I, am I capable of doing something? You know, like there's a lot, I'm, I'm summarizing, but there's a lot of that worldview, like, are people against me? Am I in a cultural minority? Am I in a majority? Do I fit somewhere? Do I not? All of those pieces play an integral role as well. And so when you when you look at both of these things, um, it's it's no wonder we see so many people getting to the place that we would probably define by your standards define as prodigal because there's all of these things at play. And if there are a few that are just a little out of whack, it can really it can really be hard to navigate how to progress in that brokenness in a way that makes sense for parents, for kids, for family members. You understand. Does that, is that going? Uh, down? Yes. Okay. It's some of it, you know, it's not quite. Sorry, it's I a am, little, but... I'll bring it back. I'll bring it back to practical. Sorry. Let's try and get a little specific then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in my audience, there will be many people who have adopted kids. Many times they look at our situation and our adoption and they say, well, that's all because he was so old already when you got him and everything was set and and nothing. It's no surprise that he was doing the things he was doing, but, but we adopted a baby got them when they were first born. And so we shouldn't anticipate these kinds of problems because they've been raised in this safe and loving and uh, spiritual environment. Um, But then they get older and they don't understand things like, oh, identity issues. Um, And that, so just, can you talk to that a little bit? I, I don't even know how to ask the question. Anytime there's a major break in what kind of is the the order of things, it can create that kind of trauma, even as a baby. And in babies, honestly, there's a huge variety in people adopting young kids also, right? There's the baby you get the day that they are born. Um, and there's a significant trauma. There's an amount of attachment. The more research has shown there's an amount of attachment that happens initially. I mean, there's a reason that parents are always talking to their babies in utero because then they come out understanding they know their mother's smell, they know their mother's voice, they know um, they they know um, there's a lot that is known about that. And so um, to take away what is known and what feels safe, even though it's only at an infant level, is a significant trauma. For, specifically, some kids are more resilient to it versus others, but there's a significant trauma and breaking there that needs to be dealt with at some point. It's not the kind of trauma that you would talk about in talk therapy and say, I have this memory of being torn away from my mother when I was one day old. Like people don't have that memory, but they can feel that sense of unsafety. Um, and it takes time to figure out what does it look like to address and, and heal some in that area, even, even if they're adopted first thing. 
you add to that time in an orphanage or time with um, foster parents or time in another environment, and you're just adding traumas. I don't, I don't want to throw out trauma nonstop, but you're adding these broken elements, right? You're adding these breakdowns in what is safe and, and what does relationship and attachment look like. And, um, you know, if they are neglected or if they aren't cared for, because let's say they're in an orphanage and there isn't the capacity for them to be picked up and cared for, we know that that directly impacts brain development, um, interpersonal development, uh, view of self, lots of things, depending on how long they're in it. And so there's a huge amount of developmental trauma that happens very early. I mean, I think probably everyone knows just by nature of having had kids, how much development happens in those first three years of life. And so there is so much happening. Um, we don't develop in our brains again in that capacity until we hit about um, adolescence. <laughs> and then our brain, our prefrontal cortex grows really, really rapidly for a little while like we haven't had it grow since we were about three. But in those first three years, it's just nonstop growth and development, explosive growth. But what's interesting is what's broken in that time encodes some and how we see the world, how we see others, how we see ourselves, how we see God. You get where I'm going there. And that brokenness stays with us. So suppose you're talking to somebody who's had this wonderful family relationship and their child's grown up with lots of security and opportunity and connection with their parents and siblings. And then all of a sudden at age 19, maybe they've gone off to college or they've gone to work or something. They just reject a lot of it or they just make, you know, non-wise choice, unwise choices. And where, where does that, how does that happen? Is that all just they decided to be selfish and focused on themselves, or is there something else that could contribute to that? Oh, that is, um, I'll say that's a complex thing. <laughs> there are a lot of things at play here. There is this, in counseling, we call it differentiation, right? There's this stage at which in our lives, we begin to differentiate from our family of origin. So from our, from our family, um, whether that's an adopted family or biological family, it doesn't really matter, but there's um, our family environment is what we know growing up. We get into middle school and high school and we start to, um, I, I shared this in our last interview, even in my own life, right? That's when you meet other kinds of people. That's when you interact with a lot of variety and you can see oh, this is what my family does, or this is different than what my family does. And it, it broadens our experience. And we have more opportunity to kind of, one, identify where am I in this? What do I really like about this behavior or this behavior? Like, are there patterns that I like in this that I want to replicate or not? And we see a lot of what we would call kind of like trying on um, different aspects of personality, life, things like that. Um, sometimes you can see it even visually, right? Very very dramatically, you'll see people, you know, for a couple months, they become really dark and moody and dye their hair dark colors and wear dark clothes. And then they switch and they are trying something very up. And maybe they try doing this other kind of cultural group. And then they're the cool kids. And then, you know, you see, um, you see, it, you can see it physically with some kids like this trying on maybe year to year, maybe every few months, they have this different group of friends that they're trying. Um, most people don't do it that dramatically externally, but there's still an element of trying on what does it look like for me to be me? How do I do relationships? How do I, um, what do I like? What do I not like both practically and interpersonally? And so 
I'm going into a little bit of extra detail here because I think it impacts sometimes it will happen in adolescence, sometimes later adolescence. I just mentioned earlier, that's also when the brain is growing a ton. And what's interesting about that is that it's the part of the brain that helps us to see, see things externally. Um, and what can tend to happen, and maybe you remember this in your own life, but certainly if you've had teenagers, you've seen it. What tends to happen is there's this, this time, maybe for about a year or so, when all of a sudden you can see the world in a totally new way and nobody else could potentially understand the way that you see the world because it's amazing and new and exciting, even though everybody who's had that part of their brain for 20, 30, 40 years has already considered a lot of this. <laughs> you don't know that when you're 16 and you get your brain in the front for the first time and you're like, oh my goodness, I understand morality and life and things in the world in a way that nobody else could potentially understand. And so for parents recognizing that that's happening, recognizing that this pattern of differentiation, which is really normal and healthy, is happening. Um, those things don't always turn out in a healthy way, depending on a number of factors. Sometimes, um, and I don't want to just get into all of them, because I feel like yeah. people could start to try and identify what it is that they did right or wrong in this. But I want to say there are certainly factors, both biological, interpersonal, maybe family systems factors for why when somebody goes away to college, they start making choices that are so, so different than their family. Um, and it could be related to what's going on in a family, in a family system. It could be related to what's going on in, internally with them biologically. Maybe they're, they're hitting a point where there's a big mental health issue, or it could be trying to figure this out and not doing it very effectively, right? Like there are just so many factors that play into you know, we talked about worldview and biology and mental health and trauma, and they all play into at that stage specifically. If you're going to have a major mental health issue, for example, it starts to develop around that same time often. You'll see bipolar emerge between 16 and 19 a lot of times, maybe into early 20s, some of those things. And so, it's so, really so bipolar emerges. It's not something that was there because that's a common <laughs> diagnosis now. Yeah. And people say, are they really? Where did this come from? There are a lot of things that have an impact. Even in mental health disorders, bipolar is a good example of a biological-based disorder, not, not as much a behavioral disorder. And so often as things are changing biologically, chemically in somebody's body, um, and as environment is changing, we're doing some of this dif differentiation, trying to do these things on your own. Some of these things, bipolar, the understand general understanding is that the tendency or the the inclination is there. It's sort of like um, you could think of other biological disorders where this might be true, right? Like let's say somebody has a tendency towards heart disease. Um, so they work in their behavior and their life to, to prevent that or they don't. And that, that can impact then the emergence of the heart disease or not. It doesn't always, but it can. So there are environmental factors that can trigger it. Um, a major one is that entrance into adolescence, though. And so I'm, I'm not going to pretend like there's an exact answer there. But um, a lot of times when we see it begin to emerge, even though it has been there, we there are cases where that is not true. There's early diagnosis of bipolar in, in kids, and you will often see some of that behavior pretty strongly if it's something that is really present in a younger child. Um, but there are a lot of times that some of the major mental health stuff comes up then. Depression is really common in teenagers. It's not always chemical. Sometimes it's because of all those changes, new brain, differentiation, all the things I said a minute ago. 
bipolar seems to be confusing to people a lot of times. So that that's helpful. Okay. So say one of my listeners comes knocking on your door and says, our our 20-year-old has is an addiction and mm-hmm. uh, won't talk to us. Or if he does, he yells and screams and tells us how terrible we are. What, how, where would you start um, to figure out, all right, what are we really dealing with here? And um, how can we help this family? Because that's your business is helping people. I think probably the most critical thing to do on the front end is, well, first of all, I'll say as a counselor, my client would be the people who come in the door. It's not necessarily the prodigal. And it is really difficult. It it would be really difficult to even imagine. And I think this is one of the things that I'm going to speak to that question, but let me, I want to speak to something else that you just kind of brought up by proxy here a little bit, but um, there's this feeling as parents, but I think especially as parents of a prodigal, but even, I mean, we were talking about adoption earlier where, and even something you said in the last time we spoke, the last interview um, about this, like, responsibility to save them, right? We have this weight of responsibility to save them. And it can it can turn a little too much and become a savior complex in some ways, right? Like I'm adopting them out of this place to save them. I'm doing these things to save them. I am going to do everything I can to change the situation so that they will be able to be changed so that they will be saved. And um, there is a weight of responsibility there. I'm not saying that we don't need to have some responsibility for our family and do what we can, but there's a there's a line there and being able to measure where that line is is maybe one of the most important things that a parent of a prodigal can do is to be able to say, this is what is mine and this is what is not mine. This is what I have any say or power over. Um, and the things that fit in that category often are, um, I have say and power over my own mental health. I have say and power over my own boundaries and what I am willing to do and I'm willing to do. I have say and power over offering this amount of help to this prodigal. I do not, on the flip side, have any say or any power over whether or not they choose to change. Um, I do not have the power to change them. I do not have the power to make the situation um, different in a radical way without their engagement in it. Um, it's kind of an... I may have said this, if your listeners, I've said this at different times. um, We, even from a very young age, right? We could worry about all the things. There is this tendency to want to control all the things in the environment to protect from this fear that we have. And and in a situation like addictions, um, the fear is that they might die. I mean, there, there's a very real tangible fear, right? Like they are not caring for their bodies. They're not caring for their life. I'm afraid for their life. I'm afraid for their impact on other people. I'm afraid, you know, like there's a lot. I mean, you have your own pain in it, but there's this fear of this very real thing that might happen, you know? And, and so to be aware that that is a very real fear, but there are no, there's, there's no limit to the things you could try to protect yourself from that fear. And you could burn yourself out trying, right? We only have so much that is within our hands and then the rest is outside of it. Um, Personally, over the years, I have found it really helpful to one, to define what my boundaries are in a situation, 
um, both for myself and for others. You don't actually have to express it to your prodigal. You don't have to say, hey, here's my boundary. You can just live it out <laughs> and that's adequate. You don't have to have a major emotional conversation about it. Um, that's true with anybody in my <laughs> case. You don't have to express your boundaries to them. You can just live them out and that's that's adequate. Um, that said, there's, you know, an example would be, um, and this is a more personal example. Um, I, when I was newly a mother, I um, co-led a group or I led a group for couples who have, were dealing with infant loss. And, um, and you can see how that might, there might be some correlation there. Um, had I, I would leave that group and I started to create a pattern for myself. And the pattern that I created was on the way home, I would allow myself to feel the feelings. I would cry. I would, I would experience those, you know, I had been sitting with people hearing the worst stories of the worst stories. And then the stories that other people had told them of the worst stories, basically a million ways your child could die. Right. <laughs> and then I'm going home to my own infant and I'm trying not to take this with me. And so I would let myself feel the emotion and be sad and be and grieve with them and be sad. And then at a certain point in my drive home, I would turn on music or I would begin to pray. And I was very intentional to switch gears to, um, this is what I have control over and this is what I don't and the rest I need to give to the Lord. And then I would go home and I would hold my child or I would nurse my child. I would spend that moment and I would just thank the Lord for what I did have. I do have control over whether or not I put them in a safe bed. I have control over whether or not I'm adequately watching them. I have control over whether or not I have people watch them that I trust. Um, but I don't have every moment of every day, my eyes on them. I don't have, I couldn't, right? I have to take a shower. I have to sleep. I have to, <laughs> I have to do those things. Um, and I, I cannot prevent every single possible thing that could go wrong. And if I spent my time worrying about all those possibilities, I would lose my experience of life. Um, I would lose my ability to experience the life that I did have. So um, I know that's not an example of addictions, but I think it's a very similar experience. Even if you have an adult child dealing with addictions, you cannot control everything. And especially as an adult, they have so much ability to choose, even if their choices are completely um, determined by their addiction for a time, you can choose to create an opportunity for safety. You can choose to create an opportunity for help. You can choose to do those things. But I'd say the number one thing to focus on and coming back to they would be my client um, is their own boundaries, their own self-care. If you are not the healthy version of you, you will not be able to love another person well. And that's true of all boundaries. I think we, we lose sight of the fact that boundaries are for ourselves, not for others. We have boundaries so that we can be the healthiest version of us so that we can love those difficult people well. And we cannot love them well if we are burnout, spent, exhausted, anxious all the time because we're trying to over control a situation and be a savior that we are not meant to be. Now, why don't you kind of shift a little and tell about the new thing that you're doing, the neurofeedback and and why and and how that's a tool and I started doing neurofeedback a few years ago. I realized, um, you know, as a counselor, we have to do continuing ed. And I realized I was doing all my continuing education in neuroscience. <laughs> so became a bit, I've always been a bit of a geek, a science geek, oh, let's be honest. But um, I, I was really enjoying that. And so I stepped out um, into the opportunity to um, 
practice that in, in a way that I could at my education level with something that was, was being proven to be very helpful. And so I stepped into using neurofeedback. It is, um, it is one of the many tools that are out there, um, but it's the one that I really was drawn to and have seen a lot of research in and have, seen, have had the opportunity then to use and, and see benefit with. Um, and it uses EEG technology, so um, which stands for electroencephalogram. So you can think like electrocardiogram, but for your brain, um, you're looking at electrical activity from the surface of the scalp using sensors. And then you offer real-time feedback with audio and visual rewards. And what I do, there are different kinds of neurofeedback. But um, the goal is that you can address things on a biological level in a, in a rather non-invasive and gentle training format. Um, so it's very similar to, to exercise, but you're doing it with your brain. We call it brain training, right? Um, you are practicing new patterns to try and adjust from patterns that are not being helpful or causing uncomfortable symptoms. The end goal is to create a more balanced nervous system. So we see it helping lots of things, um, lots of research in ADHD, lots of research in, um, we see it helping anxiety quite a bit. It does help other major issues. It certainly is helpful with sleep and um, anxiety, depression, um, a number of other things. I feel like I could go into it, but does that give an adequate, I guess, explanation? What what age range are you talking about that you do this with? I will use neurofeedback with anyone from about six to 96. I mean, obviously that's a random high age, but basically anybody who can sit still well enough to get an initial um, picture or map of what's happening electrically in their brain. Um, uh -huh. I work from, from kids as young as six to adults really into whatever age that we're able to still see some positive um, gains by doing neuro uh, biofeedback. So anytime that we would stimulate the brain, obviously kids respond more quickly <laughs> because their brain is still exploding with new neurons all the time, a little more quickly than as we age, but um, they have to be able to sit still well enough to do the initial mapping or the initial picture of what's happening in their brain. The other thing I was going to say is we have enough research. Now we can, we can see basically with comparative research, if this is what's happening at the surface, They've compared it to fMRIs so much that we have a really clear picture for the most part of what must be happening underneath the surface. So it gives us a really pretty, pretty great non-invasive way of seeing some of the major brain activity, which is great. So when you think of my audience, yeah, um, how might that be something that a tool that would be useful for them uh, for a prodigal that they had that was cooperative or younger that they could bring or older who was willing because they wanted help? You know, there are um, different practices function slightly differently, but if you found somebody using neurofeedback for mental health, um, some of the major issues that we treat would be, like I said, ADHD, some developmental disorders. Um, people will come in, even I have worked with um, kids and adults with different developmental disorders, even chromosomal disorders like Down syndrome. Obviously, we're not going to change somebody's chromosome with brain training, but we can reduce symptoms. Um, you know, I, I'll use a specific example. Um, one 13-year-old uh, I worked with, she came in and was having difficulty sleeping and was not verbally communicating very well. Um, and we were able to help improve those things, which for quality of life for family was really significant. Um, there is 
some specific neurofeedback that is used in cases of addiction that has had really great outcomes, like improving long-term reduction of addiction behavior close to 80% versus control groups, which is science words for they lasted longer not doing drugs and using alcohol than the people who did counseling alone. Um, but it is, you know, anytime you're dealing with something like this, like we're talking about reducing symptoms, helping the brain function a little better, people would still have to do some work on the behavioral change. But really one of the major benefits of a tool like this is, is we can we can help the biology get out of the way a little bit so that somebody who wants to choose to make behavioral change has a greater potential of seeing success there. So in in our audience, one of the most common things is that there have been, um, you know, usually teens or young adults who have addictions and they do want to get out of it and they go to rehab and they get better, but then they relapse and, and they get in a pattern sometime of recovery, relapse, recovery, relapse. Is this something that could be helpful in that? Well, it is. So it's an alternative, right? It's another tool. Um, there are some other specific therapies, I think, that that are also could be helpful. But as you think of what are other things I can try, obviously, I got into this because I believe and have seen it help people. Um, but it it can be another tool, something else that could change things significantly on a on a biological level. It's really interesting. You know, in counseling, we're looking at behavioral stuff. We're looking at uh, what people are doing and we're making diagnosis based on this and this and this is what they do. And that fits in this category. So we're going to say that they are this diagnosis. Um, with neurofeedback and with EEGs, we're looking at what is the brain activity. And we're able to say, okay, we're going to hopefully change some of this brain activity and see if it can change some of these behaviors, or it can at least reduce these symptoms enough that somebody could change the behavior. If somebody really wants to change and, and they come in and do, let's say, a full series of treatments with neurofeedback, it could help them make the choices to avoid the addiction. There's been research that has been specific to addiction, specific protocols that combines counseling and neurofeedback that has greatly reduced people's even desire to use substances. Because their brain is functioning more adequately, they no longer need to use these substances to help balance and create a, a different experience, a different homeostasis to give them, I'm not going to get into all the science, but to give them the same feelings, <laughs> they don't, they no longer need to do the same things because their brain is more balanced without them. They're not self-medicating to deal with their trauma, to deal with their biological or mental health disorders because they've been able to change some of the patterning at a biological level. That's fascinating and awesome. Um, I, I hope that it could be a tool that would like could help some of the people yeah. who are listening. Um, let, let's wrap up with, with this. Is, as you think again of, of this audience of people who, who love a prodigal, some of them they have no influence over uh, because they're adults when they might be not a child even who's grown up, but a parent or a sibling or something, but they still care about them. Mm -hmm. And then you have some, you still have some, uh, some control and some significant influence in their lives. So if speaking to them and you're, you're saying, how can you do, what are some 
few things that you could do that could be helpful in moving your relationship or their life choices or the what the future could look like in a good direction? I Well, I'll start by saying again what I said a little earlier, which is taking care of yourself is the best first step to helping somebody else. Um, and I don't mean that I think we can lose ourselves in trying to help another person and lose what does it look like? And that isn't an excuse for selfishness. I think we can we can swing the pendulum too far the other way, but it is a need to, okay, where where am I in this? And how is what I'm dealing with impacting how I'm dealing with this situation? Am I responding poorly or in a way that is really not helpful as a result of my own stuff that's going on? So working on yourself and and healing from your own pain and trauma that is caused by having this other person in your life that creates all this grief and pain and, and fear and all of these things is probably the best step, which then again, and this is not new. I mean, Cloud and Townsend have made how many dollars on the idea of boundaries, but you are able to, with good boundaries and good work on yourself, able to then reach out and love this person in a way that you wouldn't normally be able to. And I'd say one of the best things you can do is to intentionally show love to them in ways that they can hear and see, at least in, in part. In order for you to do that, you need to be dealing with your own stuff so that it's not coming off as manipulation or even when we unintentionally manipulate in order to try and help somebody, it is still, you know, it's still our own stuff coming out at them. And so being able to love them well, being able to be something that feels safe, um, not that you have to provide everything for them or meet all their needs or enable, but to be a safe person, to be somebody who loves them for that, not to stop. Um, it's, um, you know, I just reread um, Tim Keller's prodigal God recently. Have you all, I'm sure that that's a familiar topic, but it talks about how differently God sees the world than we do and how um, both brothers had different issues and, and God was what was different than our worldview. And so I just think, again, going back to that same picture of, um, we, we're not going to do this perfectly. You do need to be aware of your own stuff in this and you need to continue to recognize you, you have this God to provide quite a bit for you in this situation that is different than how we see and, and deal with change on this earth. We are limited by the brokenness of our surroundings and our world. And there is only so much that is inside our control and the rest we have to do kind of like what I did with my little infant son, right? I had to say, okay, this is what's within me. And this is God, I have to give the rest to you because it is outside of me and I cannot own it or I will be buried by it. Okay. I have one last question. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have a ministry called prayer for prodigals. And so one of the things that in my book and in the podcast and in this online group, that we talk about is praying for them. And what we can't do, God can do. He is able to. Um, sometimes, you know, that's a wonderful thing. And, and I definitely endorse prayer as our bottom line way to help. But at the same time, sometimes that doesn't work, it doesn't seem, because for some reason, God or the person's not listening and cooperating. But the other thing is sometimes our faith or our walk with God becomes almost a, a, a tool to hurt them that we yeah. hammer them with. Um, and and since many who would listen to this podcast uh, would have a spiritual perspective, um, 
Do you have any thoughts on how that can be wonderful, but also how it can be a really hurtful thing if if we use our faith in God in a way that's not helpful? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, you know, it's similar to what I kind of the road I started down a minute ago when I said even our good intentions can be manipulative. When we are grasping at things to try and change our circumstance, it can even the really good things can begin to be harmful. So for example, um, if we are anything we are using to try and change the person out of our behavior, even if it's spiritual things, even if it's, you know, like I'm sending you Bible verses because I want you to change. And I'm hoping that when you read this, it, it will change your opinion on something. If you are, if you are sending it out of, I really enjoyed this. I really appreciate this. It was meaningful to me. I want to share it with you. Um, there's a little bit of a difference there versus I really want this to change you. Um, there can also be this unrealistic expectation that they behave in a way that is different than the place they're in, right? Um, I'm trying to think of how to say this in an appropriate way. It can begin to push them further away from God if they feel like God, your representation of God to them is never going to accept them or is going to, like, if they continue to fall short, eventually they're going to wear out. Um, and not want to have anything to do with that potentially. And um, and what is a really good thing in prayer can really push them away. I, am I answering the question, or, or would yeah, you? Yeah, you are. You are. It's it's a tricky topic, and one of the things that I have emphasized often is the need. This one of your top priorities, maybe your top priority, is to not lose relationship with them. Yeah. And uh, so why don't we end with that? If you have any thoughts on how to maintain relationship uh, in a way that it, you, you're not controlling, you're just relating you're, and you're loving and you're caring about them in a way that, that feels that way to them as opposed to feels like you're trying to control them. It, last thoughts on that. You know, I think sometimes it's helpful when we simplify things a little bit and we think back to what do we do when we want to get to know people in general? What do we do when we want to build healthy relationships and take it out of the picture of the prodigal for a minute um, because there's so much else going on there and think, what do I do when I want to get to know someone? What do I do when I started dating my spouse, when I met a new friend, when I, you know, like, what did I do to get to know that person? I ask about what their daily lives are. I, I interact with them on a regular basis, right? Like it, we tend to be friends with people who are convenient. So if there's an opportunity for interaction somewhat regularly, that's helpful. But even just those small things, um, when I work with couples, for example, I'll have them share just a little bit about their day with each other. And it doesn't have to be emotionally significant. It doesn't have to be deep or meaningful, but just those moments of, it's what we call building the bricks of trust, right? Like being honest with each other about simple things can build that that foundation to the point of trusting each other and then trying out something a little more significant here and there. But it 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 is a really difficult thing in a relationship with a prodigal to move to what does it look like for this to be a little more mutual? And that that would be necessary as with an adult prodigal, I think is what you're asking, really. Um, but with a teen, even still, those small moments of finding those moments to connect, finding those moments to care about them, to show you care about them, um, and not at all about their behavior, but just to get to know them, to love them as they are, to celebrate who they are. You know, often as parents, 
you will know who the core and beautiful person is. And sometimes you have an expectation that they be something that they're not, but you still love them. (laughs) You know, like I tell my kids all the time, I'm like, man, I love that I get to know you all. I love that I get to know you as you are and your personalities. And I get to experience with you as you figure out, you know, like those things are exciting and to not lose sight of when you get to know a new friend, when you get to know a new person in your life, you get to experience that. You get to, um, you get to explore with them. What does that look like? And those small instances, um, there's a researcher in relationships who talks about in relationships, those big moments mean a lot less than the small things building up over time. And so just continuing to have those small moments of connection, even if they feel really insignificant, those things build up into a firm foundation of trust, which then could lead to opening doors. Well, thank you so much, Michelle Essery. Uh, You can find information about uh, Michelle uh, in the notes on the podcast. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Michelle's willingness to take time and share from her experience and uh, opportunities and the way that she understands how people work and uh, what's going on inside them in many different aspects. And give us some input and some insight on how we relate well to people we love who are maybe not making the best choices or uh, who have turned their back on not only you, Lord, but on us. And thank you also for some specific ways that we can uh, maintain that relationship, but that we can look for ways to help them uh, when that's appropriate. And certainly, Lord, we can always pray. And you are always working. And I love that that's true. You are always working. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I pray that everyone who was listening gained something that they can apply in the life of, uh, with a life of relationship with the prodigal right now. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, every one of you. Thank you for joining me today on the When You Love a Prodigal podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review helps the show reach more people with the hope and encouragement of Jesus. Don't forget, take a look at the show notes. And for more helpful information, resources, and books, check out judydouglas.com. That's Douglas with two S's. You can find me on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram at Judy Douglas 417. Until next week.